welcome back to Strange Places. I'm your host, Billy Dean Shoemate III. If you hear a little bit of a... You hear that? Clicky, clicky? I have a uh, peppermint in my mouth. I know I could totally just wait until it's dissolved, or did I just nom on the rest of it before recording, but... If you run a podcast, peppermints. Peppermints and lemon juice. See, my day job completely depends on my voice as well. So I am using my throat full bore 24 hours a day. Day job, two podcasts, multiple YouTube channels, all dependent on my voice. Gets a little bit wore out. So peppermints, lemon juice. I swear it works. So what we're going to talk about today, as you've seen from the title, The Disappearance of One Chuck Morgan. Very interesting story. Today we're going to travel to Tucson, Arizona. Been to Tucson, Arizona. Lovely town. I'm going to go back in time a wee bit too. 1977. If you'd asked anyone about Chuck Morgan, they'd have told you that he was a stand-up guy. Successful businessman, happily married, loving father, four daughters. Chuck was the president of an escrow company in Tucson, a mover and shaker in local real estate. Good at his job, respected, well-liked. Nothing out of the ordinary had ever happened in his predictable world. Then came the morning of March 22nd, 1977, the day that Chuck Morgan dropped two of his daughters at school and vanished without a trace. Now, Chuck's wife, Ruth, she was understandably distraught at his disappearance. After making the rounds of his friends, business associates, she sat down by the phone, certain that Chuck would call soon, but three days passed without a word. Then, just as Ruth was contemplating going to the police, Chuck was back. He was back. 2 a.m. on the morning of March 26th, uh, Ruth, she woke to the sound of somebody rattling a key in the lock of the front door. She went in to check on it and found her husband in a disheveled state. Chuck was missing his shoe and had a plastic handcuff around one ankle. His hands were bound with a zip tie. He indicated to Ruth that he could not speak, but pointed to a pen and notepad on a table. In it, he wrote that he'd been kidnapped and tortured. He also wrote that a hallucinogenic drug had been inserted into his throat that might destroy his nervous system. Yeah, pretty interesting already. Ruth wanted to call the police and get her husband to a doctor, but Chuck warned her against doing so, saying that you know, it, it put her and the girls in danger. That was enough to scare Ruth into compliance. She would spend the next two weeks nursing Chuck back to health. During that time, he regained his speech and filled her in on some of the background to his abduction. She said that he'd been working undercover as an agent of the Treasury Department for three years. She had no idea. The people who had taken him had found out they would likely have killed him had he not been able to escape. He would say no more. The less you know, the better, he said to her. The Chuck Morgan, who had disappeared on March 22nd, had been a laid-back, just outgoing guy. The Chuck who returned on March 26th was a nervous wreck, jumping at shadows, constantly looking over his shoulder. He started wearing a bulletproof vest, started carrying a gun. He felt certain that his abductors would make another attempt at kidnapping him. The fear was realized two months later when Chuck disappeared again. This time, there was no chance that Ruth would go to the police. Chuck had warned her of the consequences if she did. Nine days passed. 
9. Without a word for the deeply concerned Ruth, then there was a call that only deepened all of this. The caller was a woman, and her message was very, very cryptic. Chuck is all right, she said. Then, somewhat enigmatically, she added, Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8, and then just hung up. Now, in case you're wondering, the biblical reference sent Ruth scrambling for the family Bible, flipping through the pages until she found the verses the woman had alluded to. She was hoping that they might provide, you know, some kind of clue. Men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the verse says. This would leave anybody more baffled than ever. I feel the need to say this again. Listen, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. And the reassurance, uh, re, you know, reassur- why can't I say that word? The reassurance, geez, that she'd been given, the assurance that Chuck is all right, turned out to be a lie. Two days later, on June 18th, Chuck's Mercury Cougar was found stranded in the desert 40 miles from Tucson. Chuck was beside it, killed by a single bullet to the back of the head, delivered by his own gun, a 357 Magnum revolver. No joke of a pistol, for sure. That's a, whew, that's a hell of a gun. Also at the scene, Pima County investigators found Chuck's bulletproof vest, a belt buckle with a concealed knife, and a holster for the Magnum. The car also contained several other objects, a cache of ammunition, a pair of sunglasses rested on the dashboard, which Ruth swore did not belong to her husband. The police also found that the vehicle had been modified. Yeah so it could be unlocked via a switch on the rear fender. That's, that's pretty interesting. All of this spoke of a man beset by chronic paranoia, a man who had taken extraordinary steps to protect himself from some unknown enemy. But then there was the real oddities, the real ones found at the crime scene, if you didn't think this was odd already. On the back seat of the car, police found one of Chuck's teeth, carefully wrapped in a white handkerchief. Pinned inside Chuck's underwear was found a $2 bill with seven Spanish surnames written on it, along with a crudely drawn map of the border area. The map led to the towns of Robles Junction and Salacity, places that were at the center of a booming smuggling trade at the time. Also written on the $2 bill was Ecclesiastes 12, the same verse that the mystery female caller had quoted to Ruth. Then there were two arrows pointing to the numbers 1 and 8 within the bill's serial number. Yeah. No one had any idea what these references might mean, although there were some suggestions that they might have Freemason origins. Other evidence found at the scene was no less baffling. Gunpowder residue on Chuck Morgan's hand indicated he had recently fired a weapon, yet his gun was entirely devoid of fingerprints. Crime scene investigators also did not find a single print on the car. Not one. Someone had done a professional, thorough job of wiping it down. Then there was a note found in Chuck's pocket and written in his own handwriting. It provided precise directions to the spot where he was found. Clearly, what do you think? Use your brain. What was he doing? He was there to meet somebody, wasn't he? 
And yet, despite indications that Charles Curtis Morgan had been lured into the desert and executed, the police amazingly ruled his death a suicide. Despite the absence of fingerprints, the wiped-down car and gun, the note with directions, the official verdict was that he'd shot himself. Case closed. Don't dig deeper. Except that there were reasons to question the official ruling. Many reasons, to say the least. I mean, just look at this. I mean, for starters, Chuck Morgan was right-handed. The residue was found on his left hand. Was it possible that he could have placed the gun in the wrong hand and twisted his arm into a position where he could fire a bullet into the back of his brain? Possible. Likely? Hell no. What possible reason could he have had for doing that? And even if he did, for some reason, adopt this unusual approach, why were his prints not on the gun? Are we to believe that he somehow managed to wipe it down as he was laying there dying? If so, why? No. This can be said without the shadow of a doubt somebody was there with him, period. Use your common sense. We know this not just because of the absence of prints. I don't have to go with just that. Look at the sunglasses found inside the car, the directions in his pocket. That brings us to the question of who killed Chuck Morgan and why. I think the obvious answer is that he was killed due to his undercover work. It was quite possible that the work may involve informing on organized crime members. Morgan had uh, he'd done escrow work for mobsters in the past. This is known. A lot of people say allegedly. No, it's very well documented. You just got to know where to dig. He'd also been subpoenaed to testify before the Arizona Attorney General's investigation into illegal activity on the Arizona-Mexico border. He had done some dealings with people that were pretty damn shady. I don't know if he knew it or not, but he certainly did. Now, with the investigation, you know, he was asked to testify to, he did so, reluctantly. But that would have made little difference to the kind of people that we're talking about. There have also been suggestions that Chuck had dirt on several high-profile individuals in the Tucson area, including politicians and religious leaders. We don't have that confirmed. That's pretty much speculation on this part, but it was known that a lot of them were pretty dirty. Is it believable? No, oh, you bet your ass, especially here. But was Chuck Morgan ever a government agent to begin with, or was he just a front to cover for his own illicit activity? In the days after Chuck's death, a woman contacted the Pima County Sheriff's Department with information. Identifying herself as only Green Eyes, she admitted that she was the one who had called Ruth Morgan after Chuck went missing. According to Green Eyes, she met Chuck at a Tucson motel shortly before his death. He showed her a briefcase stuffed with cash, which he said was to buy himself out of a contract with the mob. Just days later, he was dead. Investigators later confirmed that Chuck had indeed stayed at that motel that Green Eyes mentioned. That part of the story checked out. The tip-off was entirely genuine. Ruth Morgan also had kind of a weird encounter in the days following her husband's death. A lot of sources I've seen didn't mention this, and I don't know why. I think this is extremely important. She was visited by two men claiming to be from the FBI. They asked if they could search the house and literally tore the place to shreds, tore her house apart. They left without saying whether they found what they were looking for. The FBI denied that the men were agents and that the Bureau had any involvement in this inquiry. Thirteen years passed. 
during which of the many mysteries surrounding Chuck Morgan remained unsolved. Then, February 1990, NBC's Unsolved Mysteries flighted an episode about the case, sparking an influx of tip-offs. Now, one of these suggests that Morgan was involved in a large-scale money laundering operation involving a large purchase purchases, plural, of gold and platinum. As investigative journalist Don Devereaux probed this lead, he was taken down a bit of a rabbit hole with a cast of characters worthy of, <laughs> you know, any TV show you would see like this, really. I mean, it's a pretty deep deal. The scale of this fraud was massive, involving upwards of almost a billion dollars worth of gold bullion alone. I'm not counting the platinum. Among the shady characters involved were corrupt CIA agents, exiled Vietnamese government officials, employees of the fucking Department of Defense, probably why I couldn't find much on it, right? And several members of the infamous Bonanno crime family. Morgan's involvement centered on fraudulent real estate deals, and he apparently kept copies of everything. A big no-no when you're dealing with the mob. This is probably what the sham FBI agents were looking for. Chuck Morgan probably thought of the paper trail as his insurance policy, you know. I would. It's likely what got him killed. Lives seem to mean little when this much money is involved. In fact, journalist Don Devereaux might himself have been a target of a mob hit, just looking into the circumstances of the death at all. This came to light after a peculiar murder that happened right across the street from Devereaux's residence in Phoenix, Arizona. The victim was a man named Doug Johnston. He was an unassuming, you know, just graphics designer, normal guy, found shot to death in the front seat of his car on the night of May 14, 1990. Johnston had been shot once behind the left ear, mafia style, with the coroner determining that the gun was 12 inches away when the trigger was pulled. No gun at the scene, although investigators did retrieve a 25 caliber bullet casing. Now, despite this, the death was ruled a suicide again. A finding that may have been thoroughly rejected by his family, of course. Doug Johnston was a happily married man. No reason at all to off himself. But I make this link for a reason, okay? Interestingly, Johnston was a good physical match for Devereaux. The two men drove similar cars. They looked a lot like each other, eerily so. Is it possible that a bumbling hitman mistook one guy for the other? Matter of fact, Robert Stack, who was the host of Unsolved Mysteries, he had some chiming in to do on this one. It was his personal belief that this Chuck Morgan was involved somehow with mafiosos and that uh, Don Devereaux, this was one of the guys who worked with Unsolved Mysteries that helped write the episode, that the mob actually wanted to hit on, uh, had a hit on him but accidentally killed this other guy. Robert Stack personally believed this. Pretty amazing. He talked about it before his death. The two men looked a lot like each other. Devereaux certainly believed so, says he had confirmation from a trusted CIA source. He became an investigative journalist after Robert Stack's unfortunate passing. The killing of Doug Johnston was a botch job. It's widely believed that the bullet was meant for Devereaux. Neither was this the last death to be linked to the case. A journalist named Dan Cass... Oh, I practice this too, damn it. I do this every time. Dan Casalero ended up dead in his bathtub 
after he contacted Don Devereaux. For information on the Chuck Morgan case for the Unsolved Mysteries episode. Yes. Seems like Unsolved Mysteries has a bit of an unsolved mystery as well. Casalero was researching an in-depth story on the money laundering allegations when he was found in his tub, bled out after his wrist was slashed several times. Police ruled it. I'm giving you a second. Come on. What did the police rule it? Yeah. Suicide. Again. However... Dan Casalero's brother, a medical doctor, rejects this verdict. He says that his brother was incredibly squeamish. He once nearly passed out after having his finger pricked to get a droplet of blood for a screening. Does this sound like the kind of guy who would hack through his own wrist to you? No. The Morgan Johnson and Casalero cases remain officially on the books as suicides. Seems very, very unlikely that they were. Introducing Paranormal in the Funhouse, the thrilling ghost hunting series that'll keep you on the edge of your seat. Join lead investigator Brandon Crody, co-investigator Stacy Crody, camera operators Kareem Patterson and Jason Krasanik, as well as the newest member, equipment technician Nathan Hardister, as they explore the most haunted, legendary, and historic locations. This team of five captures every spine-chilling moment taking a scientific approach to their ghost hunting research. Stream Paranormal in the Funhouse on Paraflix TV, the streaming network available on Roku TV, Amazon Fire Stick, Apple Television, as well as your mobile or PC. For just $4 a month, you'll gain access to the most captivating ghost hunting series, including Paranormal in the Funhouse, seasons one through three. And the excitement doesn't stop there. Season four is on its way. Paraflix TV is the ultimate destination for paranormal enthusiasts, offering a wide selection of other paranormal movies and shows. It's like having the Netflix of the paranormal at your fingertips. Stay connected with Paranormal in the Funhouse on their Facebook page, just Paranormal in the Funhouse, where you can join them for live ghost hunting experiences and stay up to date with the latest news and updates. It's an opportunity to dive deeper into the supernatural world and interact with the team behind the show. Don't miss out on the spine-tingling adventures of Paranormal in the Funhouse. Subscribe to Paraflix TV now and unlock a world of supernatural mysteries. Get ready to be captivated by the unexplained and embark on a journey that will send shivers down your spine. A link will be provided in this episode's description, so check it out. Do we know eventually what happened with this mystery? There hasn't been a lot of coverage on it since the Unsolved Mysteries episode. That was kind of a while back. Now, maybe I just need to give you a little bit more. We need a little bit more meat here, right? He told, you know, when his wife was nursing him back to health, he said he worked as an agent for the federal government. He fought against organized crime. May have been involved in it, like undercover. He said they had taken his treasury identification. He said that he escaped from his, ca his captors near Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. He was justifiably paranoid after this. All the cryptic stuff about Ecclesiastes, all that. Now, this episode originally aired in February of 1990. Although it's not mentioned in the segment, Chuck was a secret, uh, was a secret witness in another land fraud investigation. He was interviewed in it in May 1977, shortly before his death. It's not known if this had anything to do with his death. Oh, give me a break. 
Also not mentioned was that Chuck had seen several, he was seen at several restaurants and motels on the west side of Tucson after his disappearance, but before his death. To this day, this is still unsolved. Can't find squat. After this case aired, Unsolved Mysteries received several calls relating to Chuck's death. A couple of them, people called Robert, some of Robert Stack's people that he knew talked to him personally, thinking that, you know, him being the host, he somehow ran the call center. <laughs> but, <clears throat> you know. Don Devereaux investigated several leads that came up as a result of this. He learned that Chuck was heavily involved in money laundering through the escrow company. He was up to some, some shady stuff. This was confirmed after the airing of the episode. Chuck was involved in some shit. From 73 to his death in 77, he was involved in uh, the large gold and platinum transactions, which for a long time, up until the early 2000s, that was thought that he may not have been involved in that. It's been confirmed recently. He actually was. He got a large amount of money from these activities. Some of this money allegedly came from Southeast Asia. Devereaux discovered that Chuck kept duplicate records of the transactions, very detailed ones. This didn't come out until 2006. And even researching this, this episode, I know we primarily focus on the paranormal, the weird, the creepy, you know, all that stuff, strange places, right? But I think it is fun to every once in a while do these, this true crime kind of stuff. Shit, one of the most popular episodes we've ever made was The Watcher of uh, 167 Boulevard. That had nothing to do with paranormal at all. Now, am I going to go on all unsolved mysteries on you? No, I'm not. <laughs> We're going to stick to the paranormal. But I think every once in a while, something like this is a lot of fun to dive into. A mystery is a mystery, yes? I do want you to know that three months after this broadcast, Doug Johnston, remember... Shot to death in his car outside of his Phoenix office. He worked across the street from Devereaux's office, too. Did I mention that? Devereaux now believes he was supposed to be killed instead of Doug. Yeah. A year after the murder, there was a writer from uh, Washington, D.C. He was actually a friend of Danny Castellaro. He said he uncovered information about Chuck's illegal gold and platinum transactions and could prove it. This was before 2006. We eventually know that it happened. Guess what happened? He dies suspiciously too. Yeah, car accident. Ruled a suicide by the police. You seeing any repeating shit here? It was discovered via autopsy that um, he showed signs of heart attack. Didn't find any drugs in his system. Never had any heart problems before that. But the police say suicide? What does this sound like to you? Common sense, okay? I know this murder is completely unsolved, but common sense. This guy was dealing with a lot of money with a lot of really shady individuals. I know the question is, who killed Chuck Morgan? Obviously, that requires some further study. I'll say that right off the bat. But I'm going to answer that question with a question. Who wouldn't? <laughs> kill Chuck Morgan. Take your pick. The federal government. It was known that the people that he was investigating, as well as doing his own nefarious dealings with, was giving them information about stuff that the Treasury was doing. He may have been killed by our own damn government. 
All the shady people that he was dealing with, the mafia, drug trade, the escrow scandal, all that stuff. So yeah, I answer that question with a question. Who wouldn't have been able to kill him? Again, take your pick. We might never in a million years find out what happened to Chuck Morgan. But the speculative part is that the people in power, right? There were judges, politicians, city leaders that, in one case, someone even mentioned uh, there may have been a senator involved. Very powerful people. But that makes you think, doesn't it? What are the odds that you have, what is this, four deaths? What are the odds that you have four deaths that look nothing like a suicide, whatsoever, and the police, and they, all these are linked to this story. Yeah, a little tinfoil hattie, maybe, but they're all linked to this story. And they all die under these bizarre circumstances. Suicide is not something that any crime crime scene examiner worth their salt would say. And then all of them get ruled a suicide? What does that tell you? Use some sense. If the police aren't in on it, somebody told them that this is what they need to rule it as. <laughs> How painfully obvious is that? I would like to think that the, well, actually, I don't want to think this, <laughs> that the police in that county were so inept that they didn't understand a homicide from a suicide. I mean, well, think about this shit, man. What are the odds of this many people dead with these kind of circumstances and the police ruling them a suicide every time? It's got to be astronomical. It was like no question. Suicide, 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 suicide. You have a left-handed, uh, what, uh, what did the a guy, uh, I have to look back at my notes, I'm too lazy to do that. But you have a guy with shooting himself with his non-dominant hand, which would be totally awkward if you're going to kill yourself and reach around and do it with your non-dominant hand. Why don't you use your fucking dominant hand? You have another guy who dies in his bathtub. Another guy shot in his car who just so happens to drive an identical vehicle, live right by the guy in question, worked right by the guy in question, and happened to look identical to him. The guy, you know, to him, right? Castellanero, the guy who was investigating this whole thing, digging up stuff. What are the odds? There's a lot of speculation about Chuck Morgan as to where uh, as to uh, who exactly would have done it we have a few uh i mean we do have a few lead, lead, i wouldn't say leads on this what's the word i'm looking for theories right chuck claimed he was working against organized crime some believe he was actually involved with it well it's not really a belief anymore is it this was proven during the 1970s tucson along with other, other cities in Arizona, became a place that it's very well known that the mafia moved to. Due to its warm climate and controversial criminal justice system, cops were compromised in Tucson as it was. That was a known fucking thing. Led by former New York Don Joseph Bonanno, more than 500 racketeers moved to Tucson in the 70s alone. Their influence led to several gangland-style killings in the area. One of the more famous being the murder of investigative re reporter Don Bowles. What made Arizona most attractive to crime syndicates 
was a unique state law that allowed them to buy land through numbered blind trust accounts. Nobody mentions this. Nobody. I've only seen it mentioned in one source. It's like it's not important. When you deal with something this involved, you've got to mention everything. So I feel the need to. These blind trust accounts, this would allow them to remain anonymous and successfully launder money. This is how the mafia built Vegas. Chuck did real estate escrow work for at least one mafia family. We know this. They may have used him to do escrow work for purchases of gold bullion, platinum. This was more of a convenient way for them to launder money, right? I mean, starting in 73, it appeared he was doing several million dollars of escrow work in bullion and platinum. In reality, there was no bullion or platinum, some say. Instead, the money was moved through several escrow accounts and legitimized. But it wasn't until early 2000s we find out that the gold and platinum scheme was... That was the real deal. Chuck was involved, man. Which is kind of funny because he was also actively involved in pointing the finger at the mafia too. Come on, tell me how this is going to end, friends. On one occasion, Chuck mentioned to Ruth that money laundering was occurring in Tucson. However, he claimed he was not involved in it. Of course, you're going to tell your wife that. He also stated that the less she and the children knew, the better, right? It's theorized that he was killed by members of an organized crime in the Tucson area. That's probably the most likely explanation. It's possible that the mafia family that he worked for had him killed because he knew too much. Or they found out, you know what? If this guy's willing to roll over on us, which he's already doing, he's just too much of a liability. I mean, one theory is that organized crime bosses put the word out that they wanted Chuck dead. A hitman then told Chuck, so he came up with the money in order to buy the hitman off, right? However, when the two met in the desert, the hitman freaking killed him, took the money. This theory has not been confirmed, but that's pretty likely. There's a lot of people saying that this can go up. This can go up, up, up pretty high. And it may have been our own government that did it. Would you put it past him? I'd hate to sound like a cynic, but no, I wouldn't put it past him. Major heads were going to roll if a lot of this came out. And come on, it's no old, it's not news that high-ranking members in the various U.S. departments have worked with the mafia. We know this. (laughs) This has been a thing since the mafia landed in America, you know, since they started running their cities like they ran the old country. This is a tale as old as time. And we have a guy caught right in the middle who probably had... The moral capacity at one time to say, oh, this ain't right. But when you're looking at an entire vault full of gold and platinum bullion, you change your tune pretty quick. Or at least he did. Right. What is your, what is the weight of your ethics and morals? Does it weigh as much as a pallet full of platinum? Ask yourself that. Because I'm sure he did. And it got him dead. But we don't know who did it. We don't know how. We don't know why. This looks very mafia to me. But at the same time, if it was instigated by our U.S. government, they know more about the mafia than anybody. So if anybody could make it look like mafia, that's number one for me. That's the first place I would go. This looks like a mafia hit. Look at the government first. But we still don't know. I... 
always hesitate to speak ill of the dead. Because Chuck's widow, Ruth Morgan, she's not here to defend herself either. She died in 2006. Thankfully, for her, for her, before any of this major evidence was completely proven as far as the platinum gold scheme and, you know, as far as like the papers that he had and all that, before a lot of that really came out, she never got to see the extent of Chuck's nefarious activity. She was spared from it, I think. It's crazy. Ruth Morgan, did she die any under any strange circumstances? No. Nope. Not like the other guys. Pretty weird case. Have you looked into this? Have you ever read anything about it? Let me know, huh? If you have any theories, give me a shout. I kind of like this one. I like dialogue back and forth about stuff like this. So let me know. All right. Make sure to go on Asylum817.com. That's Asylum817.com for all things Strange Places related. All the social media links are there as well as the link to get to our Patreon account. Sorry. <laughs> We're getting everything from bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, giveaways of certain tiers, all kinds of stuff. Shout out to the patrons, by the way. The Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, David Peterson, all the listeners who keep coming back every week this week's sponsors, man, we're just clacking right along. Pretty cool. Almost at 100, man. <laughs> we got to do something cool for 100. Tell you what, there's been something that I've been um, kind of keeping on the back burner for a while. I've been wanting to do it since episode one. Yeah, we're not going to do anything, you know, crazy. It's just... We need to do what keeps making us successful, right? We'll acknowledge that it's episode 100, but we, you know, we're not going to make a special two-hour episode or anything crazy like that. I think we just need to keep pumping along and doing what we're doing and what's been making the show successful. But there's been something that I've been kind of self-conscious about doing since episode one because of... I'm not a private eye, <laughs> you know. I'm not uh, an investigative journalist. I didn't go to school for this stuff. But, you know, I look back at certain things, the debate team in high school and certain things that I've done since then for side gigs and stuff like that. There's just no substitute for common sense, and I'm, I'm kind of known for my research. So, yeah. Episode 100 is going to be cool. But anyway... Thanks for coming back. I'm rambling at this point. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for the listenership of the show. I had no idea it'd be as huge as it is. I'm just beside myself. Very grateful. Thank you all. And yeah, that's it. Now, are we ever going to run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place. And maybe one day, we'll visit yours. Strange Places podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a music label for truly independent artists. They will distribute and share your music on every streaming platform the internet has to offer. And the best part is that you keep all of your royalties. In fact, DistroKid has made history, marking the first time that an artist on the charts made 100% of their earnings. This is the music industry's worst nightmare, giving indie artists complete control over their art. 
for only 20 bucks a year, you can upload unlimited music and with the split feature, you can split a percentage of the earnings to your bandmates. If you click the affiliate link in this episode's description, you get 7% off the first year. But did I mention that after that, it's only 20 bucks a freaking year? I've been a musician for a long time. My music is heard all over the world and yours should be too. Click the link in this episode's description to not only support Strange Places, but put control of your own music back into your hands. No contracts, no hidden clauses, no lovely coin men and their lovely, lovely suits. Thanks to DistroKid for being a sponsor and giving this old dog an audience. <laughs>